I'm short-term bearish on the tokenized assets, security token subset of the space. I think more and more assets will move to be represented digitally on a blockchain. But in the short term, I don't quite see it. I think it's going to be a little while before we get there. A lot of infrastructure needs to be built out and investor demand needs to be built up. a lot of the value of crypto right now has been in speculation and in financial instruments. And so decentralized finance makes a lot of sense at first, but then moving to some of these other things, decentralized governance, it, that seems like a natural next step. Welcome to the Hacker Noon Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. In this episode, I interview Andy Bromberg. He's the CEO and founder of Coinless. In this episode, we talk about the latest happenings in the blockchain industry, what's happening with ICOs, and where the market's at in 2019. This is an amazing episode, so please stay tuned. This episode of Hacker Noon is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers learning how to build and scale high-performance web apps on the simplest cloud platform. With a flat pay-as-you-go pricing structure and monthly caps across all global data centers, DigitalOcean makes it easy to get the computer resources you need without the billing surprises you get from other cloud providers. Discover why developers love DigitalOcean and get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Full stack developer Austin Pocus. We're using it to host a discourse site. So basically they give us a machine and we run a dockerized instance of discourse on there. Gets a few clicks and discourse is ready to rock. With DigitalOcean, they have a marketplace where you just click, I want discourse. You provision a droplet and you're good to go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Andy. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you for uh, for having me. My name is Andy Bromberg. I'm the co-founder and president of Coinless. By way of background, uh, I got into the cryptocurrency space back in 2012, 2013. I started the Stanford Bitcoin Group with a bunch of other folks uh, while I was studying math and computer science at Stanford. A really fun experience there. Spent a couple of years doing advocacy work in the crypto space and building projects, doing academic research. Uh, I ended up leaving school, started a company called Sidewire in the media space. So not at all related to crypto. Um, something else we could talk about. Really interesting. Spent a few years in the political media space. Uh, and then in mid-2017, as CoinList was getting started up, uh, I came over as one of the founders of CoinList. And we've been running that uh, for the past year and a half or so. And that's been a lot of fun. And briefly, uh, CoinList is the place where the best digital asset companies manage their token sales, their airdrops, and their hackathons. What that means a little bit more practically is that uh, when top crypto companies are issuing a token, they often need to run a token sale. They may want to host an airdrop, meaning giving away tokens to users. They may want to host a hackathon to build their developer community. And we've built tools and systems and a community to help them do all of those things and a bunch of infrastructure to enable them to uh, raise money effectively and, and build their community, whether that's developers or otherwise, uh, from day zero and have success in the long run as a distributed network. Awesome. Well, as you know, the crypto space is going through a lot right now. So I'd love to get your opinion on, you know, how things have kind of shifted lately uh, in terms of ICOs, STOs, like what are you seeing right now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the space has changed a lot since uh, 2017 when, when CoinList got started. Uh, I think the biggest difference is at a macro level, the bottom of the market has really dropped out. In 2017 or early 2018, the signal to noise ratio was so bad in the space. We saw a massive number of really, really bad, poorly conceived projects that just shouldn't have existed. And those ranged from outright scams and frauds uh, to you know, people 
people legitimately trying to make something, but something that just didn't make sense. And, uh, and what we've seen with the, the downturn in the overall crypto market, and then specifically the ICO market, is a lot of those bad projects just disappearing, which we see as a really good thing. And you know, just a, as a data point, um, we've publicly uh, on our platform worked with six token sales out of now more than 3,000 that have approached us and asked us to help them. And that's not a bandwidth constraint for us. That's a, that's a question of, of vetting these projects. And so there's been a really bad signal-to-noise ratio. So what people talk about is that the ICO market has gone away. Uh, by absolute numbers, that may be true. But for us, we've seen the same number of quality projects coming in month after month and, uh, and looking to, to get some help and get launched um, as we did during 2017. So I think the, the top part of the market has really stayed there. Um, one thing I would add to that, though, is that the amounts being raised even for top projects have gone down significantly. And we're seeing a restructuring of the market. In 2017, it felt like there were just single big ICOs where someone would go out and raise a ton of money, and that was it. That was their only fundraising uh, mm-hmm. forever. And I think what we're seeing now is something that looks a lot more like what venture capital fundraising looks like, where it's a milestone-based and sequenced, and people raise money as they need it and as they hit new milestones. And I'd expect that trend to continue going forward, too. So fewer one-time big sales and more sequence sales as, uh, as issuers hit milestones. And what are the projects that you're seeing right now uh, that you, you know, that you're, you've been working on that, uh, that, you know, met that criteria for you? Yeah. So most recently uh, publicly on the coinless platform was the ocean protocol token sale uh, and ocean is a network for a distributed data analysis. So it's being able to uh, allow analysis of personal and private data uh, on a, a decentralized network anonymously, uh, which leads to some, some really interesting implications and use cases. They've done a ton of work, have some great partnerships, a really strong team working on it, uh, mostly based out of Europe. Uh, and so that was the last sale that was public on the Coinless platform. We've worked with many others privately uh, that we, we can't quite disclose. But, um, and that's another trend that I would say we're seeing is a lot more private sales than public sales. Uh, and so a lot more issuers are choosing to raise privately as opposed to going out with a big, splashy public raise. Okay. And how is that changing things? Is it, you know, are, are they also smaller rounds that people are raising when they're going private or is it about the same size or what, what's happening there? Yeah, I think, again, they're, they're smaller than those big public rounds were, um, but they are sequenced. And so they're going out and saying, you know, let's raise $2 million to start and then $10 million once we hit this milestone and then another 15 once we hit this milestone. And, uh, and that's, I think, going to be the status quo for a while. But also every issuer has different needs. And, uh, and they've got to raise what makes sense for them, not just take money that's being thrown at them from the market. And so we're seeing people be a lot more thoughtful about what their needs are going to be in the next 12, 18, 24 months, raising for that, and then thinking about a future sale when they get to that point. And how has the technology changed when you first started working on this stuff? Like, are you, you know, is security more of an issue now? Are you using different platforms than you were using in the beginning? Has the technology itself evolved? On our end, the technology has not substantially changed because what we do doesn't really interact a lot with the blockchains themselves. We're mostly facilitating the transactions for the sales. That means running compliance checks. It means handling transactions of US dollar or Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, coming into the issuer. It means helping with document signing and document management and token distribution. And so that we've improved our own technology a lot, but the technology we interact with has not changed that much. What has changed a lot in the last couple of years is massive improvements in the blockchain and crypto industry itself in terms of what these issuers are building with and the success they're seeing and, uh, and these networks actually launching. And we're seeing many of the networks that went out and raised first in 2017 now finally 
gearing up to go live. Uh, and we're excited to see what's going to change over the next year as some of those networks launch and get their initial traction. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I've definitely seen more and more projects going mainnet and, you know, getting out of the testnet phase and it's going to be interesting, but at the same time, we're still like, I don't know, we, we haven't seen mass adoption of anything above and beyond like crypto kitties, uh, and a few other projects that, you know, had a temporary, uh, like user base, you know, show up, but then not necessarily stick around. Um, what do you think is going to be kind of the shift that needs to happen for people to take crypto and blockchain more seriously? Yeah, so I, I agree with you. And I would actually say that the one thing that's really been massively adopted is, is Bitcoin and oh, not yeah. a whole lot else, right? I, you know, I'll go even further. And, and a lot of these projects, CryptoKitties saw some really promising results and continue to see some really promising results. There's a bunch of other games and collectibles that, that are, are doing well. Um, but it's really very small on the scale of traditional consumer products. And so I'd say really not much is there. I think the biggest blocker is the user experiences and the user interfaces for these products. Mm. Everything right now is really built for developers to use and for really crypto savvy people to use, which is an awesome early market and a great place to build some initial buzz, initial traction. But to see that consumer adoption that you're talking about, we need to see interfaces, products that are being built for ordinary people that don't understand what a private key is and don't understand what an address is. Um, and we're seeing some, again, some promising work on that front right now, but we are quite a ways away, I think, from, uh, you know, mom and dad, uh, you know, pulling up their, their account and starting to use these products. This episode of Hacker Noon is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Join a community of over 3.5 million developers learning how to build and scale high-performance web apps on the simplest cloud platform. With a flat pay-as-you-go pricing structure and monthly caps across all global data centers, DigitalOcean makes it easy to get the computer resources you need without the billing surprises you get from other cloud providers. Discover why developers love DigitalOcean and get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash hackernoon. Full-stack developer Austin Pocus. We're using it to host a discourse site. So basically, they give us a machine and we run a dockerized instance of discourse on there. Gets a few clicks and discourse is ready to rock. With DigitalOcean, they have a marketplace where you just click, I want discourse. You provision a droplet and you're good to go. We're still kind of in an infrastructure phase because a lot of the projects that I see, I mean, they're still writing protocols. Uh, you know, they're writing smart contract programming languages. Um, we're still kind of in those like early, early days. Right, which is really important. But I, I agree, you know, it's a little bit like uh, if in the early 90s, uh, we were trying to figure out what the best consumer product for the internet was going to be. And <laughs> the answer is, you know, we might have some ideas, but let's nail down some of this infrastructure first that we can actually build those consumer projects uh, and, uh, and see them, you know, launch and have success there. So I do think it's not a bad... A lot of people critique, and, and you were not doing this, but a lot of people I hear like, you know, why hasn't there been consumer adoption yet? And the simple answer is the, the pipes just aren't there. The infrastructure is not there. And, uh, you know, it was okay in hindsight that we didn't have games being used by 100 million people in 1992 on the internet. Uh, and we had to spend some time building things out first. Yeah. And, and I mean, essentially, decentralization and decentralized blockchains, I mean, it's a totally different way of doing things. And the scalability is still a challenge uh, for a lot of this stuff. But at the end, I, you know, I'm seeing a lot of projects where they're building and architecting their system, where as they add more users to the platform, it builds resiliency. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite problem of most tech startups today, where 
if they gain a large user base, like the only way they can survive is to go raise millions upon millions of dollars because they need to pay their AWS fee um, just to exist. So it does solve that challenge. But as you said, the pipes just aren't there yet. Um, so what? Well, and I do think, go so ahead. I was just going to say on top of that, I think you're right. I think the UX, I think the scalability, you're absolutely right. And then on top of that, even the developer tooling, it's hard to build applications on top of this right now. And, you know, you think about building something like, you know, modern day Facebook on the internet in, in 1995, it was not possible. The tooling was not there. And, and, and it wasn't just that, like the internet, you know, wasn't there. It was that the actual developer tooling wasn't there. And that's something else that a lot of great teams are working on, but that needs to get there for these complex applications and products to be built as well. Yeah. And so what at CoinList are you guys working on now? What, what other services and functions are you working on to uh, be able to help people raise? Yeah. So I, I think one of the biggest ones right now is actually uh, we're really focused on this hackathon product. And it's not so much helping raise, but it's about building a developer community. Because one, one thing to, to understand, to your point, is that for all these teams building infrastructure, it's end users do not use infrastructure. End users use applications that are built on top of infrastructure. And so to have those applications, these infrastructure projects need to have developers building applications on top of their pipes. And, uh, and for these infrastructure projects, it's a challenge to get developers to build on top of them. And so you don't get end users until you have those developers there building useful products. And we talked to a lot of issuers over the past year, and, and they kept saying to us, our biggest problem is finding developers and getting developers to build on top of our product, our infrastructure, our, our network. And so we realized, listen, we, this is something that we can help with. And so in January, we launched uh, Coinless Build, which is our online hackathon product. And our first partner was, was ZeroX, which is an awesome project, awesome team, uh, building mm -hmm. a really compelling uh, solution. And what we said with them was, we're going to go out to our audience of you know, hundreds of thousands of, of crypto-interested people on the internet across the world. And we're going to host a hackathon over the course of a few weeks. People are going to build products. And one thing that's interesting is that a lot of the teams we've talked to about this hackathon's product, they sponsor in-person hackathons often. And when they do that, they're really happy if you know, five teams build something on top of their product. But we hosted this online hackathon with ZeroX. Hundreds and hundreds of developers registered. We had almost 60 high-quality projects built on top of ZeroX, six zero. And these ranged all across the board, really interesting things. Many of them are continuing now. A couple of them are now the, uh, the project builders' full-time jobs that they're pushing forward with. They quit their jobs to go and work on this. And so that, for us, was a really encouraging sign that uh, we can build a compelling product here. The second hackathon we're hosting is with NewCypher, uh, and, and that's going really great. We've got kind of comparable numbers there. And so we're going to push forward on that and really try and help these issuers build developer communities so that applications can get built on top of these networks. So users can come and use those applications so the whole cycle can be completed. Uh, and that's a big focus for us, right? Now. Awesome. So you've totally, pro so you're productizing that entire process so that the people that you're working with can be able to continue post raise potentially to be able to do these hackathons, build their developer communities and actually get some product to market. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then on top of that, we're continuing to help with private sales and with airdrops, public sales, um, but, uh, but I think a lot of the focus right now in the industry is on building and on developer mm -hmm. engagement and on actually creating useful products. And so that's, uh, that's been really exciting too. So I'd love to get your thoughts on like the whole airdrop concept. Cause it always, I don't know, it was like something that just kind of showed up randomly in like 2017 toward, it was almost like mid late 2017. 
Um, and I don't know. I never really understood it. I mean, yeah. people got so excited about it. Um, and I just was like, why, why is this a thing? Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about airdrops and, you know, are there still something that people are looking to do? It's a fair question. Yeah. So I, I think the first wave of airdrops uh, did not make as much sense to me. And those airdrops, the basic formula was go and give $1 in tokens to as many people as you possibly could, potentially even every single person holding Ethereum. But, you know, at least a large number of people, go and give them a buck just to make them aware of the project. And that for me is a lot like, like a billboard, right? $1 is nothing for, for someone to get uh, in terms of tokens in a project. It's really just the guerrilla marketing of having those tokens show up in your wallet and saying, oh, I wonder what that thing is. So it's like driving by a billboard. I've never found billboards to be incredibly effective for early adoption of apps or, or internet products. And so I don't think that wave made a ton of sense to me. What I do think is really interesting is incentivizing specific behavior and actual engagement or rewarding a community. So the best analogy I have for my favorite style of airdrop is PayPal. In the early days, PayPal gave out $10 or $20 to everyone who signed up. And the way that worked was you got $10 for signing up, which was enough to kind of pique your interest. $10 says, you know, I'll, I'll sign up for this service. You check it out. You had $10 in PayPal credits. All of a sudden, you sent those $10 to a friend, paid for something in a business, whatever it may be. And you said, wow, that was a really great experience. And I will note that that part, that reaction is key, that it actually does have to be a great experience. You have to want to use it more after. But if you can get someone to use it and say, wow, that, this PayPal thing is, is so much better than me writing a check to my friend or you know, finding them and paying them cash, I got to keep using this thing. Then I'm going to go and buy more PayPal credits. I'm going to put money into PayPal. I'm going to become an active user of that product. That works. And that's worked for product after product over the years. Even products like Uber and Airbnb have referral credits where I sign up or I get a friend to sign up. We get some credits and we get to go and participate on the network. I see this new wave of airdrops that kind of happened towards the middle of last year going forward as that, where you're rewarding a specific behavior for someone you actually want to incentivize. And, and that can either be for behavior they've done in the past. So for example, our first airdrop we, we worked with was uh, Definity. Um, they gave away $35 million worth of tokens to tens of thousands of users. And those users were, by and large, existing community members. Mm -hmm. So they just wanted to go out and say, thank you for sticking with us and being engaged in our community and following through. And people got different tiers of tokens depending on their engagement. Here's a reward for that. That makes a ton of sense to me. Reward your, your customers that have been really good customers. And I think there's a, a wave of airdrops too that are saying, if you do something like sign up or refer someone or take some sort of action that's beneficial to the network, then you're getting tokens. But I don't think this kind of spray and pray airdrop model makes a lot of sense to me. I think much more highly of the targeted airdrop model where you're rewarding someone for something they've done or something they're going to do uh, as, as a benefit and get them on the network. And then at that point, going back to what I said earlier, using it actually has to be a good experience. Mm -hmm. So you have to have that nailed down. But if you can give someone $10 or $100 of tokens and they have a great experience using it on, on the network, then they're going to be a user for life. And now you, that's really successful. And it, when you boil it down, it's a marketing campaign. And you got to think of that as, as your, your CAC, your customer acquisition cost. You're paying someone money and having them sign up for your product. And you have to make sure that the value that that user is providing to the network is greater than what it costs to get them on there. And if that's true, then an airdrop is a great idea. Yeah. And ultimately, a lot of these projects, they're building economies. So I understand the whole concept of like seeding 
that yeah. initial economy to get people moving currency and, you know, transacting from A to B and starting to do that. That makes sense. And I, I definitely agree with you. If you're incentivizing, uh, you know, a, an action on the system and getting people to use it, that makes sense. It was just the airdrops that were used yeah. early for the purpose of trying to raise funds. I was just like, okay, this, this is kind of a weird uh, well, and, and there's a there's kind of a dark underbelly of that story too that a lot of exchanges during the crypto craze a year or two ago required a certain number of wallets to be in existence to list the token on the exchange or you know people wanted to see a certain number of wallets in existence to say they had a million users so they could go and fundraise what's the easiest way to do that just give away tokens to a lot of people in tiny amounts that you can say we've got a million people with wallets exchange a you should list us um, those are not high quality exchanges. Those are not high quality projects. Those are the sorts of people that have disappeared in the last six or nine months as the market's gone down. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that era is is kind of over for for airdrops. And, I mean, I remember the vanity metric of how many people you had in your Telegram group, and it was exactly. like, you know, and I used to have people come up to me like, "How do you get people in your Telegram group?" And I'm like, "I don't know, buy them." Like, but, yeah. Like that was the answer. <laughs> right. You're either looking for genuine engaged community members, in which case there are strategies you can employ to try and get that, which do not include blasting out $1 to a million people, or yeah. you're going for as many people as possible, in which case, you know, maybe that's the answer. Well, let's bring it back to kind of asset management and tokenization of assets. Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the tokenization of assets and where is that market going? Uh, because there's so much potential still for you know being able to manage assets digitally from real estate physical real world things to you know digital video games that kind of thing what are what are your thoughts yeah so i i'm really interested in this market i think it is very early for the tokenized asset market there's a couple of things you touched on there which are worth noting the first which i'll set aside kind of separately is natively digital assets so things like video game assets or digital collectibles those I actually think the market could be there now for the, you know, the right product to use in a compelling way. There are core advantages to having digital assets represented on the blockchain in this immutable ledger with real proof of ownership where you can provably own this asset. And so um, there's a lot of people working in that space on the gaming and collectible side uh, that I'm really excited about. The, the NFT non-fungible token side of things uh, is a really exciting subset of the crypto space right now. I'm interested to see where that develops. But I consider that to be separate from this tokenization of existing real-world assets market. And that's things people talk about, you know, tokenizing real estate. So building a token that represents part of a building or tokenizing equity, building a token that represents part of the equity in a company. And for me, there is a lot of promise there. It feels inevitable that at some point that's going to happen. I do not think the market is there today. And the, the reason I struggle with that is that, first of all, a lot of the infrastructure for managing tokenized financial instruments, tokenized securities, tokenized real-world assets is just not built yet. And people are working on it and diligently doing so. But it's going to be a little while before all of that infrastructure is really seamless. And then on top of that, I'm not sure that there is yet investor demand for those assets. Mm -hmm. Because traditional world investors that would have invested in those assets in a non-tokenized manner, they are scared away by tokens and they don't want to touch it. And crypto investors don't necessarily want the types of risk-reward profiles that those assets offer. So I'm not sure investor demand is there. So I'm short-term bearish on the tokenized assets, security token subset of the space. Long-term, incredibly bullish. 
I think more and more assets will move to be represented digitally on a blockchain. But in the short term, I don't quite see it. Uh, I think it's going to be a little while before we get there. A lot of infrastructure needs to be built out and investor demand needs to be built up. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, uh, you know, we, it's definitely a tricky situation because as you, as we talked about earlier, you know, we're still laying that groundwork. Um, but I mean, the potential for this is huge. Is there anything else that really excites you that you're seeing right now in the space? I think, and, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm far from unique in this, uh, which may be a good signal for, for excitement, but the decentralized finance or open finance movement that's happening right now is really, really exciting. There are a bunch of great projects working on this. And the core idea is that if we can have these kind of modular components that can be put together to allow for complicated financial transactions to happen in a decentralized and permissionless and automated way, there's a lot of potential there. So you look at products like Dharma or Compound that allow for loan markets. Mm-hmm. And you see products like DAI, MakerDAO, which have kind of stable value pegged to them. You can build smart contracts that allow for any sort of financial operation. But once you have these sort of financial primitives all lined up, there's a lot of really interesting things that, that can be created that are really exciting. Uh, and so that, that decentralized finance subset of the space is one that I'm keeping a very close eye on. What are your thoughts on applying that to like governance and taxation and stuff like that? I, I think the, that's a, a great question. Transparency is so valuable, and especially this immutable transparency that the blockchain offers. And so I think the, those concepts should be applied to everything. I think this idea of transparent financial primitives applied across different verticals makes a lot of sense. I think it's natural that the first vertical it's applied to is this finance vertical, because a lot of the value of crypto right now has been in speculation and in financial uh, instruments. And so decentralized finance makes a lot of sense at first. But then moving to some of these other things, decentralized governance, um, it, that seems like a natural next step as more and more people become involved. Again, the UIs have to get a little bit better. Um, you know, one, just to touch on one specific uh, problem there, with decentralized governance, you generally need participation. You need people to be willing to participate in the governance of these networks. And right now, it's, it's just hard to do so. It's, again, the UIs are challenging. It's hard to figure out how and when to participate in these governance experiments. And so participation rates have been historically pretty low for decentralized government governance experiments. As that UI gets better, as the user experience gets better, um, I think we'll see a lot more success with some of those uh, that are actually representative of what, you know, whatever constituency happens to be using it uh, really believes. Yeah, I can. I look forward to the day when I can just renew my license from the DMV from a blockchain and don't actually have to show up physically and deal with all of that. You and uh, me both. But uh, you know, it, it's it's simple things like that that we can automate with this technology, and that has so much potential and power. Uh, so that you know, we can focus our time and energy on you know whatever our intentions are and whatever we're working on, instead of getting locked up in bureaucracy. Um, so anyways, you know, this is the Hacker Noon podcast. So I have to ask, what is some time in your life that you've had to hack something? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, one time I, uh, went and, and hacked something was I was in college, uh, and there was a very popular consumer financial technology company, uh, kind of like a competitor to Venmo, but they were going to let you pay with sound. Uh, I will, I'll leave their, their name out of this discussion. Um, but they had these wait lists all over the country for how many people had to sign up to uh, participate in the, uh, in the uh, you know, beta and play with it. And I really wanted to. Uh, I was at a school that was much smaller than other schools. 
So we were at a massive disadvantage in terms of the, the waitlist ranking. And, uh, but I wanted to test it out. And so uh, I wrangled with it and figured out a vulnerability and managed to insert thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, fake Stanford students into their database, um, indicating that Stanford had the, the longest waitlist of every university in the country uh, for, this, uh, for this product. Uh, and, uh, and then they found out and unfortunately they ended up voiding all the entries. So perhaps not a successful hack, but, uh, <laughs> I think we'll, uh, we'll count it regardless. Yeah, no, that's definitely a hack. Um, even if you got caught, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, that happens sometimes. So it happens. Um, they, they brought me in for an interview afterwards. So it, at least one thing came out well. Yeah, I'm sure they were probably pretty interested in talking to you after that. Yeah. Uh, so do you have any final thoughts here on what we've talked about so far? No, I think, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think the, the thing that I wake up and remind myself of every day is that crypto is in its absolute infancy right now. And it feels like, you know, the gray hairs come out every cycle. We see new things happen, crazier things happen. The markets go, go nuts one way or the other. Um, but when you take a step back and look at this on a multi-year scale... We are at the absolute beginning of this industry. And no matter what we think we understand about it, the way it's going to look in five years is nothing like what we can imagine, and certainly not in 10 or 15. Uh, so I think the best thing to do in this space is just always keep your eye on the future, see what people are building, see what experiments are happening. Not all of them will be successful, but the ones that are are going to define what the future looks like in the next couple of decades. Awesome. And where can people find you? Uh, yeah, so CoinList is at coinlist.co.co. Uh, so check us out on there. I'm on Twitter at Andy underscore Bromberg uh, and feel free to reach out anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Andy. Thanks for having me. This concludes another episode of the Hacker Noon podcast. I'm your host, Trent Lipinski. Please don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us at hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com for more episodes. Thank you for listening.